We're going to cover tonight more verses than we've ever covered in a single sitting, but they all work together, and thus we must. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be reading from verse 19 until verse 30. And in so doing, we're going to finish Philippians chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 19, says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, so that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he merely died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Before we get started, uh, let's pray one more time together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Uh, We just pray, Father, that your word uh, would speak to us. Um, Even in a section like this, Father, it can be so fascinating to see why you left certain parts of scripture here, why you left Um, This report to people we've never heard of before. And yet, Father, because your spirit um, has inspired your word and it is your very breath, um, we have so much to learn from this passage and we have so much to learn from these men. So we pray you would open our hearts to hear it, that we would hear it just as loudly as every other uh, sermon that we've ever heard from your word, um, that we might not only know you, but we might live for you and see how good it is um, to live life Uh, under your rule. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I read about a professor who has a little tradition that he does every time he has a new class and he has a first day of class. And what he does is he asks for two students, usually a boy and a girl, to come up to the front and to introduce themselves to everyone. And when they do that, He tells them to just explain any unique characteristic or interest that they have so that everyone knows their uniqueness. But he has one condition. And the condition is they're not allowed to reference a group that they're a member of. They can't reference any group that they might associate it with. And so they do that. The first student says, okay, my name is Bob Boberson. And immediately, this is why you left, that's a real name, Bob Boberson. And immediately the professor jumps in and he says, you just broke my rule. And the student says, what's the problem? All I said was my name, Bob Boberson, a normal name. And the teacher tells them, you broke my condition because your last name associates you with a group. That group is your family. 
And your family is maybe one of the most important groups you could ever be a part of. So please move forward accordingly and no longer say your name. So the student immediately realizes the stakes are raised and they become very intimidated, but they try to continue. But everything they say, whether it's a hobby they're interested in, whether it's a food that they like, the professor continually interrupts and points out the fact that everything they seem to reference is referring to a group. The student eventually gives up and they're just simply too intimidated. The next student is not very pumped. Everything that they thought of to describe themselves as seemingly dissolves away, whether they can tie it to a group themselves or just knowing the professor is gonna do the same thing again. And so they decide to sit down. The professor even tells us in his illustration from the book that I read that had this illustration, that if he wanted to be really annoying, he could actually even point out that using English associates them with a group. The English, people who speak English. And so if they're speaking English, even that kind of breaks the rule. But obviously he doesn't want to be too annoying. He just wants to prove a point. So after both the students have been very intimidated, maybe a little bit embarrassed, the professor tells them, okay, don't sit down yet. Now do it again, but no condition. Say whatever you want. Reference any group you want. And both of the students open up. They share what they like. They share their family. They share their interests. They can suddenly share all sorts of things. And then the professor allows them to sit down. And he uses this illustration for a very particular point. Because the professor is a sociologist. And sociology is the study of people and society. How you fit in with the larger group of people around you. And the point of that illustration is very simple. He does it to point out that every single one of our identities is shaped by other people and is shaped by other groups. One way you could say it is no one's identity is self-generated. You didn't just figure out who you were one day. You are inevitably shaped by the people around you, the groups you associate with, and they, the people around you, are crucial to help you figure out who you really are. And that actually, as it turns out, is the way God designed us. Uh, Kelly Capek, who wrote um, a book from which this illustration comes, explains this. He says, we can't talk about what we love without referring to other people, because humans are necessarily social creatures with histories. Trying to deny that is a rejection of our humanity. So very, very strong words. And he continues by saying this. Our whole lives involve the interdependence of human beings, which means life is made up of you being dependent on other people, whether you recognize that or not. And he says, only when I consider my identity through relationships to other people can I start to see who I truly am. And this is why a healthy church, family, and friendships are vital. Because I need others if I am to be the most faithful version of me. We expose one another's blind spots and we help one another imagine a more beautiful, flourishing life. In short, Christians need other Christians. Christians need other Christians. It's the way God designed us. We need other Christians in order to maximize our lives and our potentials for Christ. 
But even more than that, we need other Christians to understand Christ more deeply. Because as it turns out, the way that you learn about the Christian life isn't simply through doctrine. It's not just through sermons like this or conversations. A massively important way that you learn the truth of Christ is seeing it and experiencing it worked out in other people. And we say that because that is essential in what we're covering today in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to 30. Because as it turns out, these two people, one man named Timothy and another man named Epaphroditus, are not only amazing examples of Christianity, but they are examples of the message of Philippians. These two men from Philippi embody the message of Philippians. Now, in order to explain that, we need to be reminded of what Philippians is about. It's been about three weeks since we met. What is the book of Philippians about? And in a nutshell, there's at least two things really important when we think of the message of Philippians. Number one, gospel commitment. The gospel matters, and we must live for the gospel. And then the other central ideal behind that is humility. Humility. If you could boil down the chief character quality that Paul wants you to maximize, to focus on, it's to become humble. And Paul has actually already used people as an example to show you the importance of gospel commitment and humility. The first person is Paul himself. Because if you remember most of chapter 1, specifically starting from chapter 1 verse 12 all the way to verse 26, Paul has actually been using himself as an example. He's been talking about his experiences. He's been talking about how he's currently in prison in Rome. But he's used that as a launch point to explain to you the doctrine of Christ. He started by explaining what's happening to him, and then he explained through his own life circumstances, a Christ-centered perspective and what he has been doing to be a Christ follower in those circumstances. So Paul has already been demonstrating this through his own life. And the second example that we had was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a real person, and Jesus Christ is our ultimate example. And you'll remember from Philippians 2, verse 5, down to verse 11, Jesus has been our chief example of humility, submitting yourself to the interests of others. Instead of doing what is owed to you, you set aside your own honor in order to serve others. And Jesus Christ, in his obedience, taking on human flesh and going to the cross, is that ultimate example. So we've had an example of Paul. We've had an example of Jesus. And that kind of leads us to an obvious question. Now we have two more examples. And the question is, why? Why do we need two more examples? And two more examples, you'll notice, for quite a lot of text. These two guys get 11 verses together. That's about as much as Jesus got. And that's kind of surprising. Why do we need two more examples from these two guys? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One obvious reason is when it comes to examples, I think more the merrier. Because the reality is people are very different. Lots of people bring different qualities of the Christian life out of their life in different shades and colors. And we learn lots from different people. But I don't think that's the chief reason why. 
think the chief reason why is because these two men that are introduced here, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are ordinary men. And that's really the key word. They're ordinary men who are extraordinary examples. But it matters they're ordinary. Because just think about it. If your only example, for the Philippians, if their only example was Paul the Apostle and Jesus Christ, that would be a very intimidating example of the Christian life. Because you're basically pointing out the chief superheroes of the Christian life and saying, be like them. And that is very intimidating. Now, that is certainly possible if you take all the doctrine of Philippians and you know the spirit that empowered Paul is the spirit given to you. The spirit that Jesus Christ walked in has been given to you because you have the mind of Christ. That is all true. But there's something about seeing the same principles worked out in men who the Philippians knew and men who the Philippians loved. Men who the Philippians walked with and talked with and knew their personalities and knew they were like them. There's something about seeing them live out these principles that is really encouraging. Because seeing their ordinary obedience gives us tangible, visible, and attainable models of Philippians. Models of the message of Philippians. These are ordinary men who were partners in the gospel, who had love that abounded with knowledge and discernment, who lived lives worthy of the gospel, who were working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and who were confident that God was working in and through them for his good pleasure. And if it's possible for them, then it should maximize our encouragement that this can be for us too. So this is the main point that we're covering today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to 30 is Paul reinforcing the importance of the gospel and humility through two men's examples. Paul reinforces the importance of the gospel and humility through two men's examples. And the way we're going to go through that is very simple. Number one, we're going to look and observe Timothy's life. Number two, we're going to look and observe Epaphroditus' life. And then number three, we're just going to make some simple applications. Timothy, Epaphroditus, applications. So let's get into it starting in verse 19 to 24. The first paragraph is the example of Timothy. Now besides the New Testament authors of scripture, Timothy is probably the most famous person in the New Testament. But in verse 19 and in the latter verses, 23 and 24, Paul explains why he's bringing up Timothy. The reason he's bringing up Timothy is he is going to send Timothy to the Philippians. You see, Paul himself wants to go. He wants to go to see his friends in Philippi, to love them, and to minister to them in person. But he can't because he's in a Roman prison. But Timothy is close by, and he wants to send somebody, and he says... I'm sending Timothy because Timothy is the perfect person to send. I'm going to send him. He's going to minister to you. And he is going to, verse 19, give me cheerful news of you. He's going to tell me how you're doing. And he's saying it in a way that I know you're doing well. And I'm excited to hear how well you're doing through Timothy. That's why Timothy's going back. But then Paul explains why Timothy is a suitable replacement for him. 
Because he says in verse 20, I have no one like Timothy, which is another way of saying he's like-minded with me. He's like Paul in some way. And now what he's not saying is that Paul and Timothy have the same personality. He's not saying that Timothy does a really good Paul impression, so I'm going to send him back and he'll basically pretend to be me. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that Paul's chief commitment and Timothy's chief commitment is the same. And it has the same passion. And their passion is for Christ. In verse 21, he says that Timothy is concerned with the interests of Jesus Christ. That's why he's sending Timothy back, because he models his life on Christ. But it's more than that, because he could send other Christians too. The reason he really wants to point out is Timothy's genuine love. And his genuine love for them in particular. Timothy loved the gospel and that translated into love for the Philippians. He says in verse 22 that you Philippians, you know Timothy's proven worth. And what he's referring to is how Timothy has proved his love for them. And that means of anyone the Philippians should want to get back. They know they want back Timothy. Because according to verse 22, he goes on to say, Timothy is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely concerned. And genuine is really the key word. Many Christians love other people. In fact, Christians are called to love one another. And we're called to put the interests of others before our own. We already covered that in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. But there are some people who are uniquely powerful examples of divine love. And it's because of their love for Christ. As one commentator, one pastor says it this way, Timothy's Christ-like mind affects where his attention is focused and what he's preoccupied with. He has a gospel mind, and that mind affects his whole outlook on life. And I think the way that Paul would want this kind of love described is a humble love. It's a humble love. Paul knew that Timothy would be good to send because Timothy cared more about others and loving others than himself. And that's why he's sending him back. Timothy has submitted his life to Christ and therefore submitted his life to other people. And again, remember, he said, Timothy's proven that. And Paul really wants to point that home. He really wants that to be obvious. And so one of the ways that he's saying that is giving you an example. He's like, you know how I know he loves you? I know that he loves you and he'll minister to you because he's already been ministering to me. He says that in verse 22. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served me in the gospel. I definitely know he's going to minister to you. Because he's already been doing that with me for a long time. Because Timothy knew that Jesus was using Paul in amazing ways throughout the world. And so he decided the best thing I can do with my life is not do my own thing, but help Paul do the thing Jesus has called him to do. And that might seem like an awesome opportunity, and it was, because Paul was this absolutely amazing Christian. But as one commentator I read appropriately pointed out, it would not have been easy. If you read places like the end of 2 Corinthians, for example, you know a lot of people left Paul. 
He had other people at different periods of time helping him, but they left him. Some people left because of their own sin, but a lot of people left just because it was hard. They couldn't bear the weight of the burden that Paul had been given, and they couldn't even bear the burden that they were trying to take off of him. But Timothy wasn't like that. And it wasn't because he was amazingly knowledgeable or wise or particularly more tough than anyone else. It's actually just because he had one very simple goal. I want to be really humble. That was it. I want to be humble and submit my life to Christ and therefore submit my life to someone else who loves Christ. And he just happened to meet the Apostle Paul. And that is kind of why he is such a perfect example to point out. Because his kind of humility, genuine humility, maximized, self-disciplined, I'm going to be good at one thing, humility is the kind of humility Paul wants to put on display so that we would want that kind of humility. Because the reality is, people who want to be good examples are often intimidated because they want to be good at a lot of things and they know their character should grow in so many different ways. But the reality is that they can make it really, really complicated. And they can think so hard about being an example that they forget actually how easy it might be to be a good example. So for example, me and Ashley, uh, in our marriage, we have watched many ancient historical Chinese dramas. And they're awesome, and they're really different from any TV show I've ever watched. And most of them are about the emperor of China, there's different emperors, there are different dynasties, um, and their court. It's really, really interesting. And one thing that I found out is when you watch the emperor, a lot of time in the show is with him dealing with things throughout China, and he really cares about what the people think of him. A lot. It like motivates everything that he does. And the thing he wants to be seen as, the thing he wants to be remembered as most, is being benevolent, is being merciful and loving. And so every time his people in the court come in, they're like, He's asking the question, okay, what should we do? How should we handle this? How will the people see me as benevolent? And they put so much time into making sure the people see him a certain way. But the question that he never asks is if he genuinely feels that way. He spent so much time, it seems. How are people going to think of me? But he never actually talks about if he genuinely loves the people. And that complicates the whole thing. But I think that's probably why Timothy is such a good example. Because Timothy didn't think, how are people going to see me? Are they going to see me? Are they going to love me? Are they going to see my love for them? That wasn't his point. He just wanted to genuinely love people. That's it. I'm going to be genuine and I'm going to love them. And because of how uninterested he was in his own identity or being honored for that, He ends up, even as a very ordinary man, with genuine love, he becomes an extraordinary example of the gospel and an extraordinary example for us to imitate. Now, that's one guy, but we got another guy. And the other guy's name is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, which probably a lot of people have never heard of because he's not nearly so famous as Timothy, but maybe he should be. Because when you look at his report in verse 25 to 30, it's quite exceptional. 
Uh, from what we know of the New Testament, there's not a lot about this guy, but it seems that he was some kind of deacon in the Philippian church. And in Philippians 4.18, at the end of this letter, it says that the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Paul. And he was sending him to see him, probably in a Roman prison. And he was going to give him a gift that we're pretty sure is money. They were financially giving a gift to Paul, and Epaphroditus was their guy. It was a demonstration of the love that they had for Paul and the love that this church had for the gospel. And they sent Epaphroditus not only because he was trustworthy, maybe because he was fast, um, but because they knew he would be a good representative of their church, that he loved Paul. So he would represent the love of the whole Philippian church. But at the end of the day, Epaphroditus had a very ordinary mission. It was very straightforward. He was to deliver this gift and be a nurse. Because when you're in prison in this period of time, you don't have the government taking care of you. They'll put you in a prison and it's up to your friends and your family to take care of you. And the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to be his nurse, to help him. Which is awesome, but pretty straightforward. Pretty ordinary. And yet, he doesn't seem to be a very ordinary guy based on the description Paul gives to him. Because if you look at verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. So he was sent, and now Paul wants to send him back. And he describes him as my brother and a fellow worker and a fellow soldier, which are actually a lot of really nice things to say. You know, if you were a king, you describe yourself in a lot of ways, but you don't just say, this is the king. You say, this guy's lord of these islands, and he's in charge of these people over here, and his dad is Zeus, and this thing too, and then you say his name. They have a lot of titles. And this is like the Christian equivalent of like kingly titles. And I won't break all of them down for you. I, I think you get that they're all good. He, he's a family member. He works like me in the gospel, which is awesome. And he fights for Christ's glory like me. And the question is why? Because this guy is a delivery boy and he's a nurse. And he's honored so highly. And the reason seems to be not because of the mission he had, but how he carried it out. Because Paul points out a lot that in going to this Roman prison, Epaphroditus nearly died. Verse 27 says he was near to death. Verse 29 says he nearly died for the work of Christ. And then again in verse 30 it says he nearly he risked his life. Apparently he got sick and had every reason to not deliver this message, to wait and abandon this mission. We don't know how much money the Philippians had, but probably not more than they would want to spend on his life. And for some reason, which is obvious, Epaphroditus kept going. There's a movie called 1917, and it's about a, a guy who has to deliver a message in World War I to another army that's kind of far away. And he needs to deliver this message to the army to make sure they don't run into a trap, a battle that they're in. And at the end of the movie, there's this amazing climactic scene where the guy has to run across a live battlefield with all these soldiers charging and bombs are going off. And he's all sad and I think he's been shot. And he's like running through them to try and get this message to the people. And it's, it's amazing. And you're watching and you're like, this guy is so awesome. He's so committed. He's doing something so hard. 
That's like Epaphroditus. That's like a good picture of him. It's like Epaphroditus, no matter what's going on with him, he's trying to deliver this message. And the point is really clear. Epaphroditus clearly believed no matter how much he suffered, he would keep going to live for the gospel. He is like the embodiment of gospel commitment amidst suffering. And remember, these guys, the point is that these guys embody the message of Philippians. And so the question is, have we talked about being committed to the gospel in the midst of suffering? Yeah, Paul's talked about it a lot, actually. In verse 118, he said he's suffering himself, but it's all okay as long as Christ is proclaimed. And then he explains Jesus' humility was seen in the fact that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus persisted despite his suffering for us, Philippians 2.8. And that's the same charge that Paul gave us. In chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For us Christians, it's been granted to us that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And Epaphroditus is a man who embodied that. Not a Jesus, not a Paul, an ordinary Christian who could still be committed to the gospel amidst his own suffering. He even seems to be the kind of guy that when he got to Paul, if he was better by then, we don't know. He seems to be the kind of guy, Paul's like, hey, I heard you were really sick. He seems to be the kind of guy who's like, no, 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 I was totally fine. I was totally fine. It was just a scratch. It's totally fine. And that is clearly not true because Paul emphasizes this so much. And the reason he's emphasizing it is that the humility of Epaphroditus and how unconcerned he was to point out his own faithfulness is, again, exactly why this kind of guy, this ordinary guy, should be pointed out as an extraordinary example. If you ask Epaphroditus the question, when should we live for the gospel? He would say, always, and especially when it's hard. And the reason that's so helpful is, again, because he's ordinary. Many of you are probably thinking, and some of you have asked me, it's easy to talk about suffering for the gospel as a Christian, but what if I haven't suffered anything yet? And I think that can be a huge roadblock in trying to accept the gospel. I think most of us have got that devil on our shoulder that's telling us, It's really easy to be a Christian right now, but I don't know how I'm going to do when I suffer. And Epaphroditus says, you don't need to cave. Even if you've never suffered, even if you haven't gone through something hard yet, when it happens, you cannot give up on Christ. You don't need to go through some special boot camp. You don't need to have it slowly and incrementally build over time. You don't need to get a PhD in suffering for the gospel. You need one thing. Focus on Christ. Focused on the calling that he's provided. Focused on the impact that Christ could use through you. Regardless of your gifting and regardless of your skill. It's a focus on Christ. And Epaphroditus was so focused on Christ that his suffering didn't distract him from the gospel. It's really interesting, if you think about it, if you were suffering the way Epaphroditus was, you might be mad at God, actually. 
Because if you're doing something really awesome, you're going to give a monetary gift from one church to the Apostle Paul, and all of a sudden you get sick, and you know God is sovereign, you might be like, what's the deal? I'm doing something really good here, God. Why are you protecting me from sickness? Why do you need to almost kill me? I'm doing something for you. I think I might think that, honestly. But you know what Epaphroditus is thinking? He's thinking, oh my goodness, I almost died. The Philippians are going to be so worried about me. That's what he's thinking. Because we see, if you actually look at the way he describes it, Paul says, Epaphroditus has been longing with you, and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And he was ill. And he almost died. It's a really funny picture, actually, if you think about it. Epaphroditus almost died. He should be really worried about himself, because that's the way most human beings would be. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about the Philippians. They're so worried about me. And the Philippians, meanwhile, are over here, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about Epaphroditus over here. And then Paul is watching it. He's like, I'm so worried that Epaphroditus is so worried that the Philippians are so worried that Epaphroditus almost died. That's the picture we get. It's like ridiculous. Everybody's worried about each other, and that's why he's sending Epaphroditus back. So the last person Epaphroditus is thinking about is himself. And because of that, the Philippians aren't thinking about themselves either. They're thinking about him. And Paul is so encouraged that he's thinking about everyone. So think about it. Is God sovereign in suffering? Yes. Is he working out something good in suffering? Yes. What's he working out in this suffering? Well, Paul says, God had mercy on him, not just so you would see him, but that I also would be less anxious. Because the reality is the Philippian church, the thing they were struggling the most was unity, not loving one another humbly. But through the example of Epaphroditus in his suffering, you know what happened? He reignited love in this church. Through his example, everybody got a lot closer to unity. That's how God was sovereign in suffering. Through the example of one ordinary guy who, yes, did a very extraordinary thing, but not because he thought he was amazing, but because he trusted Christ. And Christ used that mercifully to bring this church to a reminder of how much they love one another. That's how impactful his example was. So we got two guys. We got Timothy and we got Epaphroditus. We've looked a bit at them and we observed them. And according to verse 30, Paul says that men like these people should be received with joy and be honored. And the way that we can take that is that we're supposed to look at those guys, though we've never met them, and we're supposed to learn something from them. So I want to make a couple of quick applications for you. Here's three questions that you can ask yourself after looking at the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Three questions for you to apply. Number one. Are you looking at and learning from gospel believers? Are you looking at and learning from gospel believers? An essential part of living as a Christian is learning from other Christians in action. A lot of things are learned from being taught. Many, many things are learned from being caught. You need to be around Christians and observe their life. It's essential for your maturity. The whole Bible speaks to this truth. I think the problem 
a lot of us have is not that we need to be reminded to look up to Christians. I don't think that's our problem. I think many of you know that someone should be looked up to because they're a Christian. But I think our problem lies in that we get so distracted in why we look up to them. We look up to people because they're Christian. But if we think about it, we really look up to them because they're cool Christians. Or they're likable Christians. They're my kind of Christian. They're funny Christians. Insert here, Christian. And the reality is that if we look up to Christians for the wrong reasons, you won't learn what you're supposed to learn from them. I've already made one reference to China. I might as well make another. I really like Chinese culture. It's so fascinating to me. I've been learning a lot of Chinese proverbs. They're very fascinating to me. And one Chinese proverb that I learned, I won't give you the Chinese name because I'll butcher it, but the translation is basically copying the frown of the beautiful person. And the proverb goes like this. There's a beautiful woman in a town, and everyone around her is like, that's the most beautiful woman in the whole world. But she also had an illness, and so she used to walk around, hunched over, with a face looking like she was in pain. And then there was a woman in the town who was not nearly so attractive, and she wanted to be attractive, so she wanted to be like this other woman. So when she saw her hunched over, the not attractive woman also hunched herself over and put a... A look on her face like she was in pain, just ow, in the same way. And the reality is that didn't make her any more beautiful. It made her more unattractive. It's not a very nice proverb to the people in mind, but it's a proverb nonetheless. And there's a very specific point, which is it's not just you imitating people. It's you imitating them for the right reason. And so the question is this. Do you look up to people who live for the gospel because... They live for the gospel. Do you look up to Christians because you want to love Christ like them? Because you have a good opportunity. One way you can apply this right away. Maximize your time at this church and in Roots Ministry. Because you're going to be gone before you know it. And you know what? I'm not a perfect example for you. And your leaders aren't perfect examples for you. And that's not why you need to learn and observe from our lives. The reason we want to teach you and the reason you should learn things from us is because that's the way Christianity works. You have ordinary Christians around you who care about one thing, loving Jesus. And every day we're trying to think of one thing, which is how can I be a little bit more like Jesus and a little more in love with Jesus in this area of my life? And because we trust Christ, we know that that can be and have an extraordinary impact on other people. So if you want to learn from other gospel believers, don't look at Craigslist and don't go on Facebook Marketplace looking for Christian friends. Just observe the people God's put around you. Observe the Christians around you because they're exactly who Christ wants you to learn from. Number two. Are you trying to become the gospel model you ought to be? Are you trying to become the gospel model you ought to be? And I'm specifically talking to those of you who are Christians. Regardless of what you care about, you are working out who you are in your friend group. The friends you have are seeing 
the most you, you. The most normal you. And therefore, you should ask yourself what you're like in front of your friends. Do you love to laugh? Do you like to make them laugh? Do you love to ask them lots of questions because you like to be deep and you want to get deeper into their life? Do you tease them? Do they care? Do they not care? Is it part of your culture? Do you spend a lot of your time talking about other people? Are you bossy with your friends? Are you defensive with your friends? Are you exclusive with your friends? No more friends. I got friends. No more friends. The way you are in your friend group is probably the most you that you are. And the question is, do you want the gospel to be normal amongst your friends? Because if you do, then that's genuine. If you don't, and you call yourself a Christian, you got to think about it. you got to think about it. The reality is that most of us don't think we need to talk about the gospel because we're like, I grew up in the church. My friends grew up in the church. My friends, whether they're at private school or public school, I've got Christian friends. We're all Christians. I don't need to talk about the gospel. We all know it. That's not a good assumption. Because if we're all going to heaven, then we should want to talk like we're already in heaven. Because that's the people God is making us into more and more every day. And we already are those people. So we should want to talk about these things. We should want to. But I think the other reason that we don't always talk about them is we just get so scared about how we're representing Jesus. We don't want to say a scripture wrong. We don't want to give about advice. And so it's better to just talk about things that don't matter as much. And the reality is you can be a gospel model. That's kind of like the whole point of Philippians. You don't need to be the most amazing Pauline person in the whole world to be used in the life of your friends. High schoolers, a bunch of you, I've told you before, a lot of the junior high students are going to remember you more than me. Because you're like them, you're closer to them. And your example of faithfulness is just more impactful in so many ways than mine. You'd be surprised at how your ordinary love for the gospel can make a big difference. I think that's why Timothy and Epaphroditus were such good examples. Because they maximized one thing, a genuine, sincere love for Christ, regardless of the circumstances, which is the message of Philippians. And their ordinary example made an amazing difference. And the point of pointing at them is that you can be that same influence. You can be that same example. If you are in Christ, keep coming to Christ in faith. And if that's your one thing, you'd be surprised at how impactful you could be. And here's the third one. Do you want to love the gospel and live for the gospel like these men? And I'm specifically talking to you, those of you who are not Christians. Those of you who either don't want to know Christ or those of you who want to know Christ and just find it so difficult. There could be lots of reasons. There could be sins that you love more than Christ. There could be patterns you don't want to give up. There could be lots of things. But it could also be this one thing. Is Christ actually worth it? And does Christ think I'm worth it? 
think that's probably the biggest thing that gets in the way of anybody accepting the gospel. But the reality is that you might not be trusting Christ and his love for you and are trying to prove it to him instead. You know why Timothy and Epaphroditus were such good examples? Because it wasn't because they were so scared of proving their value to Christ. It's because they knew when they were sinners, Christ died for them. That even while they were sinners, Jesus lived a perfect life that they couldn't and died for the punishment of their sin that they couldn't. And because they were so assured in what Christ did and not what they had to do, they could do amazing things for Jesus. So if you are not a Christian, ask yourself the question, do you really think a life for Christ is worth it? With all the suffering that's inevitable, with all of the friendships you might need to forsake, And with all the difficulties of growing in holiness and putting off wickedness, is it worth it? Timothy and Epaphroditus would say, absolutely, yes, it is. It is absolutely worth it. A life of purpose, a life of joy, a life of assurance, and a life of amazing transformation, not just in their own life, but in the lives of people they got to impact. It is absolutely worth it. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, The gospel is for you. God's love is still for you. And God can make your life into something, though very ordinary like these pen, is very extraordinary. And we're going to cover a lot of that over the next month. But now let's pray. Father, I have said so many words, and I am so unclear in so many ways. But Father, your word is so powerful. It has supernatural power to transform lives. Father, all we want to do is look at your word and open it up that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified as you just prove who you are by yourself from your own word. Father, I just pray for these students that we would see the example of two ordinary men and would know that you can make us those men as well. You can make us those women as well. You can make us those people as well. Father, you have power to transform our lives. But before you do that, you need to remind us of your grace. We don't want to be people put together before we come to you. We want to be broken and messy that you might be glorified in your grace to us, though we are sinners. Father, for anyone here who does not know Christ, please open their eyes to their need. Please open their eyes, regardless of bad examples of faith that they have seen. Help expose them to themselves. That in their sin, there's a judgment coming. That in our finiteness, we are not created to live for ourselves. There's no joy, satisfaction, and purpose in a life built on us. Father, let us be part of something bigger Let us be a part of you, your kingdom, your glory. And we can't do that if you don't point us to Christ. Father, please transform our lives that we might live for you, know you, love you, serve you, and be in great expectation for your return. Thank you, Father, when we pray all these things in your name. Amen.